So it's good to be with you today. If you have little ones up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed right now to the foyer. If you'd like to keep them with you, please feel free to do that. It's a great day today, fun day to be together, beautiful spring. My wife and I were speaking this morning, it's almost like a New York spring, you know, it's like, it's not actually, one. we're used to going from zero to 60 in Virginia, you know, it's, it snows and the next day it's 70 and then it goes 80 and then we, we, we don't look back, but it's been an interesting spring, so enjoying this day. Right after this service is our Acts 246 service, which uh, is the fellowship meal together and then some time of uh, outdoor fun. We're going to light the bonfire out there and some other things, so enjoy. I'd like you to stay if you'd like. We'd love for you to be here. Plenty of food for you to eat. Time for you to get to know people who uh, perhaps you see in service but haven't got the chance to sit down and chat with, so we'd love to have you with us. Please plan on staying. So you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. To preserve our time today, I'd like to go ahead and start in verse 23 and read through chapter 2, uh, all the way through verse 4 in chapter 2, which really is our thought today as we capture this last part of integrity and sincerity and clear conscience, which is really where Paul is uh, coming from as he speaks to the church here in Corinth in this second letter we have preserved for us. So look, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, you can find... Uh, we're, not, we're not forwarding here, uh, Jason, if you would, go to the next one. Second uh, Corinthians 1, 23, But I call God as witness to my soul, that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Verse 23, Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you're standing firm. Now look at Second Corinthians 2, 1. But I determined, for, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Verse 2, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Verse 3. This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. And stop right there. We have seen over the last several weeks that um, Paul is dealing with criticism. He's dealing with accusation here in the church. And he's going about it a little differently than he did in the first letter that we've gone through, where he just chastens and begins to admonish. And so he goes about it in a little bit different way. He knows that um, there's some problems here, but he's going to go about it in a way that reveals his own heart. Now, Paul. Paul's main answer to the accusations and his main answer to the criticisms that have been aimed at him is his clear conscience. And we've looked at that at length. We won't do that again. But two times we've seen Paul refer to it in verse 12. You can look there on your own time again. And again in verse 15, we've seen him refer to that confidence that he has in this clear conscience. And we have seen, of course, that this testimony of conscience, which knows about him what no man can know, is the highest of human courts one that every human being has and every believer would do well to cultivate and form from the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. And so we've looked at that. We looked at how important it is, and I hope that it's become uh, very, uh, foremost in your mind as we've gone through this study as you can cultivate a clear conscience because you can fool anybody that you want. Uh, nobody will really know who you are. You can do a lot of stuff on the outside, and nobody can tell uh, that you are actually violating your conscience, but you can't fool your conscience. A well-informed conscience from the Word of God knows when you violated it and can accuse you of it. And so our desire, of course, is to make sure that we live in harmony with that conscience, that fully informed conscience from the Word of God, so that we don't have a callous, we haven't developed callous or searing that conscience where we're ignoring what it's saying as it carries on a conversation 
with us in our mind. Now, even though we can see that Paul's confidence in the testimony of his conscience isn't shaken by the accusation. So he's not second-guessing himself here because they've said he's done this or that or, or they had some expectation of him that he didn't fulfill. Uh, regardless of whether they receive his answer or not, he's not uh, going to be worried. He's fine because he understands what he's done and that he's done it as he should. But he also is going to give them some answers to their accusations, so he's not going to just leave them out there hanging. So in doing that then, as we've seen kind of a different uh, track for Paul here in 2 Corinthians, he's going to show his heart to them, and we have been able to see some character traits of Paul revealed in those answers, and those character traits, of course, become applicable to us. So as we read through, we see Paul's response. We understand that's a godly response to accusation, uh, to, to, accus uh, to um, insinuation, to criticism, those kinds of things. And so that's how we learn from the Word of God. Even though we have a narrative here, it, doesn't, it seems to be disjointed, perhaps connected uh, very intimately with this first century church, we can extrapolate from those things as we read them. How did Paul react to this? What did he say? What were the character traits that he said about himself, things that he did in the ministry? Those things then become a model for us. So that's kind of where we're tracking now as we kind of pulled out, as Paul reveals his heart, pulls out those character traits that are beneficial to us as we minister uh, amongst the flock. So now the main criticism that has created, the main problem rather that has created the criticism, uh, Paul isn't trustworthy, we saw that last time, really springs from an understanding of the church uh, that Paul was supposed to visit them. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. And he also quotes the rumor, really, in verse 17, he says this. This is actually probably, this is probably what's being said, and so Paul just says it out loud. He says, therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? So when I, when I intended to come to you twice for a blessing. Or what I pur purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes and yes and no and no at the same time. So the idea there is that, you know, he's promised to come to them twice. Uh, they, they understood that he was going to come to them twice, and it hasn't happened. And what happens here is, in Paul's answer, is that he deals with his character first. So he realizes there's accusations, and that has, from those accusations has sprung all this. He's not trustworthy. We, we can't rely on him. He waffles back and forth. He's not really godly. He doesn't, he's not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, can't tr we can't rely on him. All those kinds of things just spring out of this appears to be relatively small deal. So he's going to deal with their accusations in a minute, but he's going to deal... Uh, with the defense of his clear conscience, which takes in his attitude. So he says in verse 15, look there in your copy of God's Word, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. And uh, as we saw, this first trait of a godly minister, really modeled by Paul, was devotion. So we see that it was intent to come, and I think he wants to draw their attention to not that he hasn't come yet, but that his intent was to come, that he, he has a clear conscience here, his desire was to come, and, and his commitment to coming was for their well-being. So his, his desire was to make sure they were firmly rooted. And from the quote in verse 17, we saw the second trait of a godly minister, which was consistency. So there's this consistent dependability in Paul's ministry. And Paul's confidence is, is clear uh, in his conscience, which allows him to call on God's character as an example. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this, as Paul establishes his character, he says, God, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. So very consistent for Paul. Paul says, as sure as God is faithful in all his ways and in all his plans and making decisions based on his perfect will, Paul says, I have been faithfully consistent in my dealings with you, walking in the control of the Holy Spirit and not making decisions according to the flesh or like fleshly people do. So very consistent with Paul. And not only does he call on God's faithfulness as, as the one he models in his consistency with them, 
he recalls to their mind his previous dealings with them as a witness to his conscience. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, he says this, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, he wants to remind them, hey, we were there, we preached this to you, was not yes and no, but was yes in him. So Paul says this, Remember our ministry of teaching among you? Remember when we were there? Remember have we've come and we've taught you faithfully? Uh, we didn't waffle, we didn't equivocate. Uh, and, and it seems that Paul's point is that because he was systematic in his teaching of the Scripture, very faithful in doing that, he can be trusted then with these lesser things. So he's calling on his character first. Listen, remember, I was devoted to you. The only reason I wanted to come was to give you a blessing. I mean, that was my motivation to begin with. And consistently, I have ministered among you, and I didn't waffle back and forth. And you remember this kind of thing. I was there with you, and I, if, if you saw me teach and you heard what I said, he said, then that should reflect well on my character. So he knew that his ministry of preaching the word is going to be judged very strictly. And so he was confident in a clear conscience that he had been consistent in that area. And he gives them an example. Look at verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. That word promises, of course, is that noun that is the official announcement. So used as official announcement. So Paul says this. Paul came and in 18 months... Uh, along with giving out the gospel of Jesus, he went through all the other biblical official announcements of God, all of his promises of forgiveness and of salvation, sanctification and purpose and fellowship and hope and kingdom and heaven and blessing and peace and joy and love and goodness, all the things that we have been seeing and we look as we look through the word of God, we see these things, strength, glorification, everything God ever promised, those are your official announcements. Paul says, I came to you and as many as there are promises of God, in him they are yes. Paul reminds them that he consistently showed them that God's answer to all those promises are yes in Christ. So Paul connected all the dots for them. They were, he was there with them and they are fulfilled in him. And he says, remember, you know, you believed us. Remember you said amen? That's what Paul says. Remember the amen? He says, to him is our amen to the glory of God through us. We gave you that. You responded in amen. You agreed with what we said. It is true. Paul says, remember all of that. You glorified God in recognizing his promises through Jesus, and you did that through our teaching. And you were established, and you were fixed in place, and you understood those kinds of things. So remember, that's how we dealt with you. So he modeled devotion. He modeled consistency in his teaching. These are all character traits for him and models for us. And then look at verses 21 and 22. So verse 21 says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, verse 22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And here we saw this third characteristic of a godly minister, and that's graciousness. Graciousness. He says this. This is the reality. God established both of us firmly in Christ. So Paul's not fixing himself in some higher position above the church so that they're looking up to this uh, you know, mighty Paul who has all these things together. He says, listen, you and I were fixed the same way. He goes, I was, he says, I was established, here's these two words, with you in Christ. So in the same way. And Paul could say, you know, if I'm not the real deal, you're not either. We were both established together in the same way. And there's this equality and this brotherhood with Paul. We've seen this over and over again. He uses the words us and together and we and all those kinds of things to connect with the church. Uh, the same, the same uh, tutor that Paul has, that the church has. The same uh, textbook that Paul has, the church has. And he's going to go through this even more. There's this equality there. And Paul says, not only were we both established by God at salvation, we were both anointed by God through the Holy Spirit to understand and obey his word. Both of us together. We were both directly connected to this source of ministry 
and obedience potential. Both of us have exactly the same source and the obedience potential to act on what we see. Paul says, you can act on these things in the same way that I can through the power of the Holy Spirit because we were both anointed by the Holy Spirit at salvation. And not only that, Paul says, we were both absolutely secure. God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And I'm not more secure than you, Paul says, by what I do. You're not less secure if you're, if you're critical of me. You're not more secure because you think you're superior. We're both secure through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, as you think about that sealing, Paul's like, he's making sure they understand, you know, no power in the universe can tamper with this content. That's the idea of a sealing. And Paul says, you know, every believer has been identified as belonging to God, and we share that, Paul says, that marvelous and humbling benefit together. Okay, we're established by him, we're anointed by him, and we're sealed by him. And finally, in reminding the church of their equality together, their brotherhood together, Paul says, and he reminds them that they share a down payment. They share a deposit to ensure future that they'll share. Paul says, both of us share this guarantee of full glorification and participation in all the blessings of the age to come because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So he establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There's this graciousness with Paul. We're all connected exactly the same way. We've all got the exact same standing. So here, in the middle of his defense against these accusations, Paul, the teacher, gives them this snapshot of this marvelous position that they have in Christ along with him. This is just like Paul to do that, kind of give us this mini-sermon right in the middle of uh, this defense of his character through expressions of love to the church, and he just kind of reminds us of how all these things work, and it's something for them to recall, and it's something for them to marvel at. Paul says, you know, he prepared you and he prepared me for this purpose, to be swallowed up by life, and to prove it, he gave us the Holy Spirit, and we both share these marvelous benefits in equality. And so this is just Paul's heart. And so he's shown graciousness to the church. He identifies with them. He reminds them of what the Lord has done for each of them, all with a desire, catch this, to establish a relationship that's free of accusation and insinuation and, and doubt. It's because it's impossible to have fertile ground for ministry when that continues to exist inside the church. And Paul knows this. They're consumed with all these accusations instead of being consumed with the ministry. And so he, his conscience is clear. And he has confidence before the Lord, but he's still willing to establish, here it is, fertile ground for ministry by proving his integrity and his sincerity in the face of criticism. Ultimately, his conscience is clear before the Lord. He knows ultimately when they stand before the Lord, the church will look at his work and be appreciative of it. Right now, they're not. But he knows that's going to be the case in the future, but he'd like to see that be the case now so there can be fertile ground for ministry, and so he shows them there's heart. Now, now he's tried to remind them of his character. Now he's going to give them uh, the actual reason for his delay in coming. So he gave them this three marks of his character. Now look at verse 23, and he's going to tell them why he didn't come. Verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. And so he starts out again with this very strong statement to affirm his clear conscience. And he gives them the true reason why he hasn't come. It's certainly not, it's certainly not that he waffles back and forth and makes decisions based on a whim. And he says yes and no out of different sides of his mouth. That is what's being said about him. And that is indeed not the case. Paul is so confident that the real reason he's going to give them uh, for not coming is indeed the motivation uh, for refraining from being there, see, he calls on God as a witness to his innermost thoughts. That's what he's doing. He goes, I call God as a witness to my soul. 
I'm not lying, Paul says. I know what you've heard and what some of you are saying, but this is the real reason. I call God as witness to my soul. Calling God as a witness is such a strong way to express the truth. I mean, think about it. There is no way that Paul will call on God to be an accomplice to an act of perjury, right? I mean, if Paul's lying, there's no way he's going to say, I call God to be my witness. He hopes they understand that his calling upon the Lord as a witness to his clear conscience and his actual feelings, so that's the idea of soul, in his soul, the real Paul that will never die, the essence of who he is. He hopes that uh, they, they understand that in undisputable evidence that his stated reason for postponing the visit is the truth. So he just calls on God as a witness to his soul. But I'm not sure, as I read that, I'm not sure it lines clearly with what we've seen already. There's another way you can understand this, and I think this might be a better way to go about it. Some of your translations may have this. But it, when he says, God has witness to my soul, that word to is a preposition, epi. It can also mean against. Actually, it's used against more than it's used for to. And, and I think this, this relates a little bit better with, with the contents. So, so it's possible to take the passage as over and against my own soul, where the word soul would be used as, to mean life. So Paul would be saying, God as a witness against my own life. So Paul says, listen, as, in, in Romans, remember when he said, I wished I could be cast away so that my uh, brothers and sisters would come to faith. This is a normal response for Paul. Listen, God as a witness to my soul, God against my own life, is proof that this is the real reason why I haven't come to you. But either way, we take it. Again, Paul is confirming that he is who he says he is, and he's not concealing any agenda. He's not waffling back and forth and saying yes and no out of the same side of his mouth. You know, his conscience is clear. And as a footnote, these are some rough folk, okay? I mean, Paul uses this phrase in other places in a very positive way, and we'll see those in a moment. But here, and this is very sad, he uses it to affirm that he isn't lying. I mean, it's just as stark to me as for him in the, at the last part of 1 Corinthians to say, let Timothy dwell with you without fear. I mean, can you imagine sending a fellow minister to the church and saying, hey, he's going to come visit you, and he's going to stay there for a little while, and he's going to teach you, and I want him to be there without fear. This is the church. Why should he have to say that any more than he has to prove that he isn't lying? So he goes, God is my witness. This is the reason. So that's how ingrained the, the criticism and the doubt and the, and, the, and the types of remarks that are being made about Paul in the church are inside the church, see? He just has to appeal to God. God is, God is a witness against my own life. This is the truth. Now, there's a couple places where Paul uses this term very positively, but it gives us the sense, as Paul uses this, Paul says in, in Romans 1.9, he says, For God, and then this parenthetical statement, whom I serve in my spirit and in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, and here's, here's the rest of it, for God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So again, a promise of coming, and he says, for God is my witness, how I unceasingly make mention of you always in my prayer. So he wants them to know how much he prays for them. He tells them what he's praying for, right? Making request, if perhaps at last by the will of God I can succeed in coming to you. I pray for you all the time. I pray that I can come to you. And he says, God himself would tell you that this is true. So Paul uses this often. This is a very positive context here. And again, such a clear conscience. Paul's unafraid to state this categorically. God's my witness. I pray for you all the time. And I pray that I can come and see you, he says. Very positive, very encouraging to the church. 
you know, wouldn't you like to invest so fully, and again, these, there's so many applications here, but as you see this example, wouldn't you like to invest so fully in the ministry and be so wholly committed to that ministry, being established that you could call on God as your witness, that you pray for the ministry unceasingly? I mean, is that, is that convicting or not? I mean, as you think about the ministry you have, whatever it is, are you invested that much that you pray constantly for that ministry? I mean, this is a, just a great example of diligent, fervent service that we find as a command in Romans 12, 11. Do, do your ministry diligently and fervently unto the Lord. It's one of the things we go through and be the church class. Own the ministry. Be invested in it. It is, is part of the kingdom investment that you're making for eternity. Let that be that, that overwhelming attitude of this is what I do and nothing gets in the way of this. See, Another very positive illustration of, of this, working, uh, this wording from Paul to the church in Philippi is uh, Philippians 1.8. Paul says, for God is my witness. Again, what? How I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So again, he uses it. God's my witness to my own heart attitude, what's going on in my own heart. He, he wants them to know how much he cares for them. Uh, his innermost desire for this church to come directly in line with Jesus' desire for the church, a sacrificial type of love, a desire for her establishment, her purity, her glory. You could, as the Lord himself says, Paul, he would affirm the truth of this statement. Again, you know, Paul's conscience is clear in each of these illustrations. And just because Paul uses this phrase often, it shouldn't minimize the seriousness of it. He wants them to know just exactly how serious he is about his love for them. And again, it's a marvelous model of motive and priority in ministry to aspire to, isn't it? You know, as you, as you ask yourself this question, as we just read that passage, for God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you long for your ministry with the affection of Christ? Whatever the one the Lord has given you, do you long for that with the affection of Christ? Do you understand what the affection of Christ looks like? So reflect in how God has loved you through Christ, how he's, how he's taken you, established you, and sealed you, and filled you, and all the things that he's done. Think about the blessings that he's done and how he's gifted you with his Holy Spirit to do the things that you've done. And he wants your glory, he wants your radiance, he wants your holiness, okay? All of those things, that's the affection of Christ on you. That's the affection of Christ on the church. It's why we see in Ephesians the example, men love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the highest affection there is, see? And young lady, if you're dating someone and they're not loving you like Christ loved the church, you need to move away from that relationship because that's the way you're going to find your fulfillment, okay? You were made as a believer to be loved like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, for her holiness, for her glory, for her radiance. This is the type of desire. Paul says, for God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And he uses this phrase and one similar to it in meaning fairly often. And Paul, you know, would never have God be witness to a lie. So, so now that he has appealed to the highest possible witness here in 2 Corinthians 1.23 to confirm the truthfulness of his reason for not coming, what is it? So look back at verse 23. He says, that to spare you, that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. And we see this fourth characteristic of a godly minister, and that's patience. That's patience. Now, this is a difficult church. And as a minister, if you've served in the church as a minister, you know you never are entirely sure what the Lord is doing in the church. You're called to preach the word faithfully. You're supposed to be an under roarer and a servant. You take what's in the kitchen and you serve it to the people and you do it with, very, with no change. You want to do exactly like it came out of the kitchen, right to the people. You do it faithfully over time, see? But the Lord does all kinds of things with his church, and you never know exactly what he's doing with his people. You don't know all the history of the church. You don't know all the attitude that's there. You don't know what it's grained underneath, what's running under the current you can't see. You don't know any of that stuff. All you're supposed to do is give that kind of thing, see, consistently, patiently, 
You don't know what's all, what, what the Lord's doing in every individual life. So here's the deal. See, changes to Paul's travel plans were made, not because he was waffling back and forth and untrustworthy, but because he was bearing in mind the feelings of this Corinthian church. So at that point, see, and the passage itself doesn't tell us what he was sparing them from. This one doesn't. But we certainly know enough about other parts of his letters to know that he is speaking about some kind of disciplinary action that would need to take place. Especially if you look at 1 Corinthians 4.21, later in this letter, in, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. So he says, you know, am I going to come to you with a rod? Am I going to have to come sternly again? I don't want to do that. We even see that uh, implied here as he, the rest of this passage through verse 4. He's saying, you know, I don't want to come and make you sorrowful again. What's that mean? I'm going to come and I'm going to be very firm with you. You know, they say, oh, Paul's, you know, very strong in his letters. He'll be very, very un, uh, unconvincing when he's in pre with his presence there. Just very, uh, you know, accusative of his and, and, and uh, insulting to Paul. And so, so Paul says that, I sp that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. And I think it's important to notice that Paul isn't running for cover here, Okay. He's not afraid to take action. I think we know enough about the Apostle Paul at this point to know that he's not afraid to just wade right in there, okay? Instead, it appears that Paul is listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit at this point, and he's waiting. And another way to think about this is to think about the word forbearance. That's, that's, a, that's a, a, a similar word to the one that we look at here as we think about patience. I, to spare you, I did not come. And we think about the attitude of patience or forbearance. And as we said before, you know, as you think about these character qualities of the Lord, Okay, and the opportunities that you have to look like him. And we've, we've looked at this at length as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, but you never look like the Lord more than when you, number one, forgive. Okay, when you just categorically forgive. And that means that you don't think about it anymore, and you don't bring it up anymore, and these, these, this is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You can't pull this out of your hat, and an unbeliever is not going to be able to do this, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, you know, love forgives. And when you forgive, that means you let it go, okay? Healing starts when you do that. You know, the only person you're keeping in a prison is yourself if you're not forgiving that other person, okay? So you never, but you never look like the more, more like the Lord than when you just forgive. You just offer forgiveness regardless of whether they reciprocate back to you, uh, I'm sorry, or whatever it is. You just let it go, okay? Love covers a multitude of sins. And how many of the multitude do you own in, as your offense against the Lord? As David said, it's above my head, right? I mean, I was in that passage today, during, uh, this week during my quiet time, and I just prayed that my sins are above my head. My conscience knows all kinds of stuff, see? And I know exactly where I've failed the Lord over and over. And I know that he continually washes me, 1 John 1, 9. And I know that I'm not condemned. I'm not in any, there's not any jeopardy for me to be cast away forever in etern for eternity apart from the Lord. I'm saved. But I still know that my sins are above my head. And so there is this marvelous understanding, this forbearance and forgiveness that comes from the Lord. And you never look more like the Lord than when you forgive. Okay? So don't kid yourself. The longer you hang on to offense, the longer you think about it, let it impact your relationship with someone else, the more it impacts what you want to do with them or for them. You are not forgiving. Okay? So just be clear. We don't get to, we don't get to uh, describe that on our own. Okay, and then the second thing that makes you look like the Lord is, we saw earlier in this passage, is blessing those who dislike you. I want to come and give you a double blessing, Paul says. Now, this wasn't easy for him to do, right? Because they didn't like him, and they were having a hard time with him, and they were, they were criticizing him and insulting him and all that stuff, but he wanted to give, come and give a blessing. When you bless someone who hasn't treated you very well or won't reciprocate it, you never look more like the Lord, right? The Lord, in common grace, allows the rain to fall on the evil as well as the good, doesn't he? And he pours all kinds of common grace on people 
all the time. Marriage and family and good jobs and health and, and, and a beautiful spring day and all that. Those are all gifts from the Lord, aren't they? And so you never look more like him than when you just give a blessing to someone who won't reciprocate it. And then this one right here that we're looking at, okay? Forbearing. When you forbear. You never look more like the Lord than when you do that. And that's being patient, mark this, being patient with someone who's deserving of discipline. That's what Paul's doing. That He's being patient with a church that's deserving of discipline and will need it. And he was very clear about it in 1 Corinthians 5. I've already decided about this person who's immoral in your congregation, even though I'm not there with you. What did he say? Put him out. I'm there with you in spirit. Listen, they should not be part of the fellowship if they're in open sinfulness and unrepentant sinfulness. So Paul's not afraid to say what he needs to say, but here he's forbearing. He's being patient with someone, with someone who's deserving of discipline or deserving of wrath, and that's what Paul's doing here. Now, that's an attribute of the Lord, and it's marvelous, and it's illustrated in a lot of places, and I want to draw your attention to it because this is what Paul is modeling, okay? And Romans chapter 2, verse 4 is, is a great place to start. Here Paul says this, and he's speaking to those who would consider themselves moral people, okay? And he says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So let's just pause right there. We went through this many years ago at length, and, and I, you can go check out that later. I won't go uh, word for word here. I'll just say this. Paul says, that people tend to undervalue some of the character traits of God. I think that's a summary of that passage right there. They undervalue. You think lightly. So you undervalue some of the character traits of God. And some of those character traits, like Paul will as certainly uh, discovered here with Corinth, uh, is, um, is that forbearance. Okay? But here, it's referred to as the wealth of God. So people, according to Romans chapter 2, undervalue the wealth of God, which he shares with all men. So God pours out his goodness to all people. People undervalue that goodness. And I think you could easily see that if you start looking at our culture, how people undervalue a lot of the things that the Lord pours out as his blessing on every person. Every person alive in the world today has personally experienced the riches of God. Did you know that? That's what the scriptures say. Everybody. They experience it in every breath they take. God gives rain, as we said, food to eat, friendship, family, you know, beautiful views in the sky, the sea, water to drink. You know, part, that's just part of God's God, common grace. He pours it out on everybody. And people undervalue those things, but in particular, people undervalue God's riches in these three nouns. Now look there, if you would, in this, that, this passage of God's word. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And it says, do you think lightly of the kindness, Christotes, that's goodness in action. It's a noun, but the verb base is, is actually doing good deeds to, some, to someone, okay? A kindness, an act, expressing itself in a deed. It's the sense of what's upright, what's righteous, okay? Good things that are upright and righteous being done. People undervalue that. They also undervalue tolerance. And okay, holding back. That's the idea of God, withholding punishment. People undervalue that in our culture. It represents a suspense of wrath from God's perspective, which must eventually be exercised unless the sinner accepts God's conditions. So we understand that it's only a temporary suspense because God will uh, judge those who reject his conditions. And then the third one, the third one is patience. Patience. People think lightly of the patience of God. Both those, that tolerance and patience is the idea of what, of what Paul is expressing to the church here. So makrothumeo, that's the, the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation. So, in other words, not hastily retaliating 
promptly punishing, chasing down every single incident that is an offense against you, okay? God shows these qualities to people. These are qualities that make you look like the Lord when you show them kindness, tolerance, patience. And Paul, in order to, to, to not push the issue of the sinfulness and the critical spirit, is waiting to visit this church. Paul's not afraid of discipline. If he needs to bring it to the church, he will. But he's making room. He's making room for softening. He goes, I'm waiting. Paul knew it was a volatile situation there. He certainly had the right to come back. He certainly had the right to address it. Uh, perhaps with the whole church or, or, or a large portion who just kind of bought into the rumor and bought into the, to whatever it was, see? But anyway, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says God, God is, has riches that he gives to people and people think lightly of them. And God's not willing that any should perish. And because he feels that way, he sent his son in a manger to be abused and rejected by men that he spoke into being. And even so, he's long-suffering. Even so, even though they crucified Christ on the cross, uh, you know, he is long-suffering. He suspended his wrath temporarily. He has kindness, he has tolerance, and he has patience. So people receive the kindness of God, which refers to the benefit that God gives. And we saw that Paul, too, as he demonstrates his devotion to the church, uh, does kind deeds to them, wants to give them good things. We saw uh, people receive the tolerance of God, which is the judgment he does not give. Paul didn't retaliate or return evil for evil. And, and, uh, and people receive the patience of God, awaiting which can lead to repentance. So these are godly characteristics. Paul's modeling one of them here. And again, you never look more like the Lord than when you forgive those who've wronged you, bless those who dislike you, and be patient with those who deserve justice with the hope of reconciliation. Because the scriptures is all about reconciliation. Okay? It's all about, that's how you got in. And that's how I got in, right? Reconciliation is what the scripture is about. We're to show that because we've experienced it. Okay, we're to show kindness because we get it. We're to show tolerance because we get it. It's modeled, patience is modeled for us. It was the reason why we came to faith. For God's patience, what? Is salvation, right? Romans 2 says that. So, you know, God's not willing that any should perish. And he shows kindness, he shows tolerance, he shows patience. And again, you don't look more like the Lord than when you do those things, okay? So for long periods of time, God is kind. For long periods of time, God is tolerant. And the Hebrew expression for this can be found in Nehemiah 9.17. There are so many marvelous passages like this. When you read these in, um, in your quiet time, you should just, that should be a time of praise for you. And it's a time when you can just tell the Lord and just exalt his name in, in his, his attitude towards you. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And all God's people said, amen. Right? Because you get the benefit, so do I. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Now return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Over and over. Slow to anger. He waits. He waits. He's tolerant. He has, he's a, he has a time of, of with, withholding his wrath. He's got kindness. He has patience. In long periods of time, he does that. See? This is the riches See, that Romans 2, 4 talks about. It's not just kindness and tolerance and patience. It's kindness and tolerance and patience at their best. This is God's kindness and tolerance and patience. It's the riches of those things, see. In other words, God is good. He pours out his goodness and he withholds judgment and he does it for a long period of time. How about, um, how about Psalms 52, 1? Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of the Lord endures all day long. Listen, you boast that you can get away with evil, and it's only because the kindness of the Lord endures. He waits. And you think you're just doing your own thing. And in his patience and his tolerance, and he's withheld his judgment on you. And you're just boasting about what you're doing. 
Psalm 33, 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindnesses of the Lord. He loves righteousness and He loves judgment and justice. He loves those things, they're part of His character. And guess what? The earth is full of His loving kindness. Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all His works. If you ever doubt how the Lord thinks about you, understand these passages. These are marvelous passages that show the disposition of the Lord towards you. He's angry at sin all day long, but guess what? He is long-suffering, and his patience is not willing that any should perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. See. Psalm 107, 8, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Those are praise passages, right? Wouldn't it be great? Those are great in songs, wouldn't they? Now, the worst thing about these wonderful attributes is the fact that they will be misinterpreted as they are with Paul, okay? And just like they are in the world, okay? And, and I realize we're not moving very far in our passage today, but I think this important characteristic of Paul that he's showing here is a very important model for us and one that is taken for granted. Most people do not really see themselves as recipients of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, do they? I mean, if you witness at any length at all, you, you interact with any unbelievers, you will realize right away that people are not thinking, man, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, God gives me kindness and tolerance and patience and that he withholds and he has long suffering on the sons of men. I'm really glad for that, right? We, we, don't, we don't really see that, right? In fact, you know, the goodness of God is most clearly seen when someone commits a sin and isn't judged on the spot, right? I mean, he has the right to do that, doesn't he? You know, God had every reason at the fall to wipe men off the map and start again, didn't he? I mean, walking with him in the garden and they rebelled. He had the right to start again. And it's only his kindness and his tolerance and his patience that allow us to take another breath. I mean, it's good to understand that. I think we understand that's God's character, that he is kind and he is tolerant and he's patient and he's good. And he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, right? It's good to know that God is like that, but it's also good to know that in his kindness, tolerance, and patience, we get to take another breath. You know, he was good to the people of Noah's time, right? He waited 120 years, and the preaching of Noah to this wicked world that was every, every thought was wickedness, that's what the Lord says, continually. And 120 years while Noah is building an ark that's going to carry animals out of the flood and himself and any other redeemed person, the Lord was going to deliver them. 120 years, that's, that's patience, isn't it? He was patient with Judah and Israel almost 800 years before he brought judgment on them. We're so short, aren't we? I mean, we, we're like, we, we'll deal with someone for a month, and we're like, they will never, they will never change. A month, two weeks, a year. We are so short-sighted when it comes to what we've received from the Lord, aren't we? He was patient with the nations. You know, Acts says the time of his ignorance, at time of ignorance he overlooked as Paul's dealing in Athens, remember, you know, I proclaim to you that in this unknown God, he says, uh, the true God, who in his patience has overlooked the, in the ignorance of men. But now he's calling all men to what? Repent. You know, he, he is wonderfully patient with us today. I mean, look around you. I mean, just look at the world. I mean, people sinning whenever they want, however they want. You know, the divine law of our wonderful God just trampled underfoot constantly, right? He, he himself is openly despised. His name is blasphemed. It's amazing that he doesn't strike dead people who do that. I mean, when you hear someone blaspheme the name, of, the name of the Lord and then take another breath, that's the goodness of God, isn't it? I mean, when they blaspheme God's name and they use God's name in vain, one of the Ten Commandments, do not do that. 
right? The God of all the universe, the one who created everything, and then this puny little people, they say, you know, they blaspheme the Lord's name, and they take another breath. That's the goodness of the Lord. He doesn't have to do that, does he? Why does he cut them down? You know, why doesn't he cut you and I down when we sin? Like Ananias and Sapphira. You come in and lie to the Holy Spirit. He established the church purity right away, doesn't he? This is the mark. You don't come in and lie to the Holy Spirit, okay? You know, why doesn't the earth, you know, open up and swallow us like, you know, Dathan and Abiram? You steal something, you know, and you weren't supposed to steal it, and you conceal it, and whatever. We are so easy to judge other people, and we are so, we are so easy on ourselves, aren't we? We, we, there's no self, we have a very difficult time with self-awareness, I think. When you hold on to unforgiveness, you're holding on to, you don't, you don't have self-awareness at that point. You're part of the unjust servant who was forgiven an unforgivable debt and then turned around to a payable debt and threw somebody in prison to get it, see? So, you know, this type of, this type of response from the Lord to us is a good example. It's the way Paul is dealing with the church, even though they've been so unkind to him, so uh, undisciplined, so unruly, so uh, sinful, and see, he just has patience. You know, it, and here's the thing. If you ever thought for a moment that, you know, the God's unjust, you see something happen, and he, he deals out a little bit of wrath on somebody, it just shows you, you know, how easy it is for us to learn to exploit the goodness of God, doesn't it? To, to understand how good God is, and, uh, you know, somehow think he, he could be unjust in the way he works salvation or, or what happens in the nations or uh, some tsunami that happens somewhere or whatever, right? So Romans 2.4 says, You think lightly of the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that kindness of God leads you to repentance. See, these are the things designated to cause people to turn from sin to him. And that's what Paul's hoping for the church, see, in, in, here in 2 Corinthians 1.23. He's like, I, to spare you, to spare you, I didn't come. It's designed to cause men who are filled with evil to long for God and God's goodness. See, and Paul's showing that patience and kindness to the Corinthian church right now. And he's hoping that they'll return to Christ and begin to display the fruit of the Spirit. Come in line and understand, you know, his heart and what he's doing here and what, he's, what the Lord has given him at the job to do, not what their expectations are necessarily. See, it doesn't mean the discipline isn't supposed to happen. Uh, we understand the Lord withholds judgment and he's tolerant for a time. See, Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 5 about what to do with an open immorality, and we see both of these things displayed by the Lord. A little further along in Romans 3.23, Paul brings it up again. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. So the cross, here's the deal, the cross showed God's righteousness, just in case anyone had misinterpreted His forbearance and His patience in thinking He wasn't concerned about sin, that he'd overlooked the times of rebellion and he's passed over it and he'd withheld his judgment just in case anybody thought, well, that must be how God is. He's not really that concerned about sin and everybody's going to get in anyway, so no big deal. You know, God has a right to destroy those who sin. He withholds judgment and he waits. And this verse tells us the reason why he waits and the reason why he waited is he was sending Christ to provide a way of redemption. Christianity is firmly founded in reconciliation and he waited so that people could be reconciled. Peter illustrates the patience and that's patient attribute of God that Paul demonstrates in our passage here in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, mark this, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and regard, again, mark it, 
The patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of our Lord as salvation. I, I attribute that to Romans 2. It's, it's uh, 2 Peter 3. The point is this. That God is patient. He doesn't hurry to punish every sinner. He withheld punishment when he might have inflicted it. See? And we, we look forward to the cross. Uh, you know, they look forward to the cross for the sins. And we look back on the cross that, uh, for the sins. He was so patient. And at the cross he showed that he, he was going to judge sin. And he judged it on his son. See? That told you how severe the problem was. For God says it's his glory to be patient. See? It's his glory to wait. It's his glory to show forbearance. See? But the cross shows God's unwavering righteousness and his demand for righteousness and, and the very means why, whereby sin is forgiven. This is a time for patience. This is a time for forbearance. And in 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul shows that attribute of patience. And he's sensitive to the Spirit, obviously. But he can see this dysfunctional church misinterpreting his statements and misinterpreting what he's doing and, and just insulting him and constantly coming out with criticisms and causing division and, and all kinds of stuff going on in the church. And, and, and so... You can just imagine, so Paul says, to spare you, I didn't come. And you can just imagine the response from this, this fleshly church. Oh, Paul wanted to spare us. He's so full of himself. He's so full of himself. I mean, you know, his letters are real strong. He is such a wimp when he's face-to-face with us. You know, this is, the sa- this is exactly the same response, beloved, that people respond to the Lord in his riches of, good, of his goodness and, and kindness and tolerance, right? I mean, it's exactly the same response. So Paul says, look back at uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. And then verse 24, and we'll just touch on this this morning. We have a Kairos missions moment, so we're going to make sure we set some time aside for that. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. And then you can see there's like, oh, he wanted to spare us. He's so full of himself. You know, again, Paul just kind of consumed with Paul. And so right here in the middle of verse 24, we see this fifth characteristic trait of a godly minister. And what is that? That's laboring for fruit. Paul says, you know, he says, listen, you know, and hear that fruit of the spirit is joy. Paul says, you know, I'm coming, you know, not that I lord it over you and over your faith, but workers with you for your joy. So, in other words, Paul says, listen, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this for my reputation. I'm not doing this for my esteem, for my praise, you know. And you can just kind of see it in their heart attitude towards Paul. You know, Paul's like thinking to himself, you know, I could do without this. You know, I don't really need this trouble. I don't need this hardship. I don't need people constantly criticizing me. I don't need people to have expectations of me that are apart from what the Word of God says I'm supposed to do. You know, listen, he's not looking for himself. He's not looking for a reputation, not looking for esteem, not looking for a praise. And it's a good thing, too, because he's not getting any of that from the church, is he? I mean, there's none of that coming from the church. No appreciation, no, hey, you're doing a great job, whatever. And not that Paul was even looking for that, but he's, he says, listen, I'm not lording it over you. He looks at himself as a co-laborer. We've seen that word before. He wants to see fruit produced together with them. Again, he's just kind of pulling them in. Together we work for the, for the sake of the kingdom. Together we work for the sake of fruit, for the sake of sanctification. And to see that produced, that, that fruit of joy produced, is not always easy. There's no, listen, there's no spiritual fruit of joy in rebellion. There's no spiritual fruit of joy in backbiting and in gossiping and in slandering. Okay? We know this, don't we? There's no fruit of the spirit of joy in somebody who backbites. In somebody who's unforgiving. 
No spiritual fruit of joy. So that's not easy to accomplish. So Paul's calling them together. I'm a co-laborer with you for the spiritual fruit of joy. You know, chasing after uh, perceived shortfalls. You know, accusing people. No joy there. And this is exactly what the church was known for. So Paul wants them to know, it's not my intent to lord it over your faith. Paul doesn't want them to think that he has some high opinion of himself. He just got through saying, we're together on this. We were established together. We were anointed together. We were empowered. All that kind of stuff together. He planted the church. He helped establish it. He has the office of an elder. But remember, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, let a man so consider us, Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's his true attitude about himself. See? He said earlier that they together with him were established, anointed, sealed, given a down payment. He says to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ultimately, this is con you know, Paul's consistent teaching, each Christian will stand alone before Christ. You know, he can't make them faithful. He can't make them spiritual. That's why I started early in the beginning. When you, when you pastor a church, you don't always know what's going on in the church. And you have no power to make somebody spiritual. There's no way you can force somebody to obey the word of God. It's not possible for you to do that. Paul, Paul he says, I'm not lording this over you. You don't have to produce this because I tell you, you do. Okay? He can't make them spiritual. He has a job to do. And he has ways that he is supposed to respond to the church, depending on what the situation is. And he certainly has discharged that over and over again, different ways. Right now, he's showing patience and not coming to spare them. And ultimately, he knows they're going to respond a very sarcastic way back to him. He knows he can't, by the sheer power of his will, create any authenticity in the church. He just has to be that steward. He just has to do what he's supposed to do. Consider us servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what I'm going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. Okay? That's what he says. Instead, he says that he, Titus, Savannah, Timothy, we are workers, he says, with you for your joy. They're doing what they're doing to see spiritual fruit. That's our desire, he says. We're working together with you for your joy. That's what we want to produce. You know, and, and here it's the fruit of joy manifested in the life of the church. And again, those wonderful two words, you know, in the English, with you. Paul says, my conscience is clear. See, I have... No accusing conscience. I want to be a co-laborer with you, working in accordance with the Holy Spirit, praying and working to this end. That's my desire, Paul says. This is where I want to be. And this is a wonderful attribute and attitude that Paul displays here. And we're going to start here next time because we're out of time. But the question you can ask yourself until next time, is that your motivation? To see the spiritual fruit of joy produced in your life? And we just make application over and over again as we see, you know, he's laboring for fruit. Is that what you're doing in your ministry? Is your desire to labor for fruit? I mean, you can't force obedience. You can't force authenticity. You can be sitting there and not paying a bit of attention to anything I just got through saying, and you won't have any idea what I got through saying over the next couple weeks. Does that make a difference to me? I mean, I'm sorry for you, but ultimately it's you who's going to lose, right? I mean, when you think about it, as you do the teaching that you do, um, as you're faithful to what the Word of God says, you just take it out of the kitchen, you give it to them, and they don't, if they don't, if they don't submit, they don't submit. There's nothing, you still have to do what you have to do, but ultimately you stand before the Lord. Okay? You're not going to ride in on your parents' coattails, you know, on your wife or on your husband or whatever. You've got to do what the Lord has told you to do. What does the word say? What's it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then make that, that's spirituality. 
It's not how long you've been in the church, not how many boards you've served on, not whether or not you serve in some ministry or whatever. It, it, it makes no difference. True spirituality is not how old you are in the faith. True spirituality is what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And putting that to work. You grow in your understanding of the Holy Spirit and you grow in your understanding in spirituality and maturity by the way that you do that. See, and Paul just says, listen, you know, I'm not here to load it over your faith. I'm working together with you for your joy. For in your faith, you're standing firm. You, you're the one, you're the one who has to stand before the Lord, ultimately. You know, he encourages them. You know, you're standing firm. He always says, you're, you're a saint. That's what it looks like. But ultimately, it's between them and the Lord. You know, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, call them one hope. You know, God the Father is over all, in all, through all. Each one of us given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. You stand or fall in that. So that's Paul's, that's Paul's emphasis. And as we look at it, you know, and, and it just seems to be kind of disjointed. It seems to be connected so close to this first century church. We realize, though, that the attitudes that are there are ones that are universal in the ministry that goes on in the church. And so I hope that's our, our connection to it uh, this morning and over the next couple of weeks. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We'll have a marvelous missions moment here in just a moment. But uh, let's bow together and ask the Lord to really firm this up in our own heart. Lord, we thank you today for a time in the Word. We thank you for the attributes we saw of you, your patience, your kindness, your tolerance. And you give those as riches and you, you, uh, people undervalue them. And as we, as we deal with one another in this way, I'm sure they'll be undervalued. As we show patience and tolerance and kindness, as we, as we bless, as we forgive, you know, those things, those things are taken lightly and not responded to well. But Lord, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them. And again, we call on uh, you to help revitalize or restore our conscience in such a way that we will know that we're doing it with those heart attitudes. Forgiving like you forgive, you know, blessing like you bless, being tolerant and patient like you are, forgiving like you do. Lord, you know our motivation. Someday we'll stand before you. We'll have a beam of seat judgment. You'll show all the buildings that we built on, uh, all the parts of the house we built on the foundation of Christ will all be revealed and tested by fire. And all those parts that, you know, it appeared on the outside we were doing one thing, uh, but the motivation was our own selfishness or, or some obligation somehow that we thought we had to do that to make people think we were spiritual. All those things would be burned away. And Lord, I pray that we'll be about building the right stuff with the right types of material. Gold, silver, and precious stone. Things based on the right motivation, things based on the attitudes that we find in your word, modeled for us, of course, with Paul, but given to us by Jesus and by you, Lord. And so I pray that you'll make us those types of servants. We can fool anybody into thinking we're spiritual, but you know whether we are or not. And you've given us a very clear picture of what that looks like. You've shown us what forgiveness looks like, what generosity, what blessing look like. Lord, I pray that we'll be those kinds of people. Vitalize us, Lord. Thank you for the ministry that goes on here. Thank you for so many who are involved everywhere. Thank you for all the ministry that goes on under the radar, needs that are met, immediate needs that are met, things that are done to benefit another believer. Thank you for that. Thank you for our time downstairs in just a few minutes where we'll get to minister to one another, encourage one another. Lord, draw us to fellowship time. It's part of the very heartbeat of the church as a believer. The one another's can only be done in the types of fellowships that we do. And Lord, I pray that we'll draw closer to each other in that way that we might be able to uh, further meet the needs of the saints as would be fitting for those who call in the name of Christ. So for all these things, Father, many and probably many other things that you're doing in the hearts of people here, uh, Lord, I pray that you would just confirm those commitments that were made today, uh, commitments to follow you more closely, commitments to obey your word better, commitments to let go of 
of unforgiveness and, uh, and harshness to, to embrace reconciliation, all, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'll be about that work in our hearts. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.